0: How many of you played uh, when you were growing up? Pretend games. many of you played pretend games? My favorite pretend pastime was pretend baseball. I was a pretend p- pitcher. We had a brick home, and I would draw a strike zone on the side of that brick house, and back off about forty-five feet or so with a with a baseball, and and throw it against that wall for hours and hours. I would pitch against the. Dodgers or the Twins or, or or the Yankees. I knew all the lineups and the stats and the numbers by heart back in those days and I, I don't ever remember giving up a home run to Mickey Mantle or Harmon Killebrew or Frank Howard. And that's part of the beauty of pretend. Also I know later in life I realized because of all that noise that baseball made against the side of that house for those hours how much my mother loved me. She put up with that whack, whack, whack over and over again. Whether it's a major league pitcher or a fireman or a doctor or a policeman or a NASCAR driver or an astronaut, the best thing about pretend game is that you can be anybody you want to be and do anything that you want to do. Of course, I know as adults we don't play pretend games any longer, or at least if we do, we're not as obvious about it. We all go through seasons when we're not entirely satisfied with who we've become or what we've become or where we find ourselves in life. We all have times when we would just like to get away from the reality of our circumstances and, and maybe just dream a little. What would, what would things be like if if I had if I'd been smarter, if I'd worked harder, if I'd trained harder in athletics. What if I'd really applied myself in high school and in college, I might have been an architect or a doctor or a lawyer. If only I'd tried harder, studied more, if only I'd had bigger dreams or maybe we dream about wealth if I had a higher paying job or if someone would just leave me a bunch of money if I would just hit the lottery think of all the things I could do with that money all the people I could help my family and, and I'd, I'd be happy if I had all that money so often when we indulge in these grown up pretend games we're, we're doing it to, to escape the reality of life which can prevent us from facing our circumstances and dealing with them in a straightforward manner if we get caught up in those dreams Sadly, Christians can at times lapse into a kind of pretend Christianity where our walk doesn't line up with our talk. We become apathetic or or lazy or we fall back into old patterns of, of sinful behavior. But but if we're truly His, and because He who began a good work will keep at it, God has a way of confronting us in our spiritual malaise, confronting us with who we really are and and what we've been doing with our life. Some of you know that I retired from uh, full-time pastoral ministry at at the end of May in 2021. And uh, as the weeks went on into months, I'm going to give you the abridged version of this testimony. As the weeks went on into, into, into months, I found myself uh, kind of coasting. I, had, I, had, I always used the metaphor of I had kicked it up into neutral, and I was coasting uh, spiritually, physically. And, and uh, even at times, maybe I was grinding it up into reverse. And as I began to get some opportunities last fall to preach, preached here a couple of times in a couple of other churches in our community, uh, it, really, it really came to the forefront, that neutral that, that got moving backwards in my spirituality especially. And then as it became apparent that perhaps there was an opportunity here to serve as your interim pastor, it became even more apparent. And on Christmas Day of last year, I got r- really sick. Uh, the next day, I found myself at the ER, and then I was in the hospital for 11 days with something called Ogilvy's syndrome, which is a an undiagnosed... They can't figure out what's blocking your large colon. There's no kink there. There's no mass there. It's just... It just won't work. And so for 11 days, I subsisted on ice chips and, and had a lot of pain. When I began those, those first few days of that, I, I remember praying uh, very powerfully, strongly, uh, Lord, get me out of this. I, I don't need this. Move me past this. And, and then as day 4 or 5 came along, I, I began to pray, God, help me. Help me in this. Be with me. Be with me in this. Walk, walk with me in this. I need to feel your comfort. And then about day 7... God had done a work in my heart. And I began to pray, thank you, Father, for bringing me into this time of adversity because, you see, he needed to get my attention because I was in a spiritual malaise. I had kicked it up into neutral. And I'm not saying that God caused that illness, but, of course, he could have. He's sovereign. But God doesn't miss opportunities to get our attention when he needs to get our attention. And he got Richard Pettyjohns attention and I, and I believe and looking back on it in retrospect and we could discuss this but i believe it was in preparation for for this opportunity i wasn't ready to do this even though i'd been there before and pastored larger churches and smaller churches than this i wasn't where i needed to be as the time approached and so god got my attention we're going to read verses two through ten each week as we get to go to the beatitudes at least we're going to read read verses two through ten so would you please stand in honor of the reading of god's word you know we do this not because it's just you know checking off a box and, and and just doing it because the pastor up here says stand up. We do this because you and I we revere this word. We we recognize the power and the authority that the word has over our lives. Its its salvific efficacy. We know this word has transformative power, and so we stand truly in honor of the reading of God's word. And here's what it says. Here's what the word says here. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Father, often when we when we come to familiar texts, we uh, we kind of disengage our minds because we've seen it all and heard it all, and and perhaps even taught it all. But I pray, Father, for a, just a fresh awareness today and an open spirit amongst each of us to hear what you would have to say to us through this familiar passage of scripture father we want to be touched we want to be changed we want to be more conformed to the image of your son jesus christ when we leave this place than we are now in his name we pray amen please be seated beloved if we take the sermon on the mount seriously as we ought If we apply its teachings to our lives, it will lead us out of pretend Christian life and to genuine Christian life. The greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived yanks away the veil of pretense and gives us a righteous biblical perspective on life. The Sermon on the Mount that suggests to you shows us who God is. It brings us into His presence. The Sermon on the the Mount reveals who we really are. And it it challenges us to deal with the reality of our situation in the light of the grace and the goodness and the greatness of God. We examined the first beatitude last week, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We we saw that the first step in, in coming... The Christ is to see our poverty of spirit. The first step to, to, to being in right relationship with God is to see our poverty of spirit. And unless until we get that, until we grasp that our, our, our total insufficiency, apart from God, we will never, because our pride won't let us, we will never cry out as the publican, have mercy on me, O God, for I'm a sinner. And it's only when we totally yield our lives to Him, recognizing how undeniably dependent upon Him we are, that we become open, that we put ourselves in a situation, that we have the foundation that God needs to begin to do the work He desires to do. And it's, just, it's the first step, and that's why Jesus started there. Now, today I want us to look at the, at the natural result of you and I comprehending our spiritual poverty and to get to this point i want to ask you a simple question this morning it's the title of my sermon and it is are you taking sin seriously church are we taking sin seriously the goal of this message is to lead us to do just that Now, about right now some of you may be wondering if we're on the same page uh, literally i mean you you're questioning what, what's the preacher talking about because uh, when he says Jesus is talking about mourning here, I, I thought Jesus was talking about grief, about normal uh, you know, grieving over loss in general in our, in our lives. And when we talk about mourning as in, in with our families or with our friends, we're, we're most often talking about, about grief as with a great loss. Mourning is simple as a simple, ordinary aspect of human life mourning which too many of us in this room ha- have experienced in our lives. Mourning we all express as a result of, of various events and circumstances which are part of the human condition. And of course, there's, of course, nothing wrong with with that kind of mourning. I'm not saying that at all. The loss of a loved one or a parent or, or a spouse or, or a child or, or a dear friend brings great, devastating grief often. And short of death, when we learn of someone dear to us who's been diagnosed with a, with a serious, potentially terminal illness. We mourn for their circumstance as we pray for their healing. And there are any number of tragic events or circumstances in the world that can bring about mourning, death and destruction, as we saw with the, the earthquake in Turkey last weekend, 28,000 and counting at this point, an incomprehensible number for me. There are obvious Obviously, events which cause genuine, heartfelt, mournful expressions of grief to come from us. And yes, the one the Bible describes as our comforter in sorrow, our shelter from the storm, our help in times of trouble, our refuge in times of trouble. He stands ever ready to give us the only perfect peace, complete comfort, and even genuine joy that can assuage our grief in such times. And what a blessing. We know, all of us in this room, perhaps... What a blessing His consolation is when we've been facing difficult, grievous times. But in this beatitude, Jesus is speaking of another kind of mourning. What Jesus is talking about here is mourning over our spiritual condition that leads us into a deeper fellowship with God. It's a godly mourning, a godly sorrow leading to repentance of sin in our lives. It's a genuine, heartfelt anguish over the sin our sin and the sin of others as well sin that damages our relationship with our father sin that separates us from him sin that darkens deceives and threatens to destroy our culture as it has other cultures before ours we absolutely absolutely need that level of anguish of mourning even righteous anger over the sins we see in our world today. The, the kind that Moses displayed when he broke those two tablets coming down off Mount Sinai, been up there interceding for the people uh, with the Father and only to return and find them engaged in idolatry and, and immorality. Uh, the kind of righteous anger that Jesus displayed when he cleansed the temple and then wept over the beloved yet faithless city of Jerusalem. Rather than mourn our sin, though, I, I fear that too often all we do is get angry because it's just easier to get angry about sin, abortion, pornography, paganism, idolatry and all its forms when what we need is not just righteous anger but real anguish, genuine mourning. And the difference is, is our heart broken over the sin that we see plaguing our world? Is our heart broken over the sin we see plaguing our world? We usually don't have any, any problem feeling outrage over the sin that we see in our world today. After all, we're talking about the sins of others, and we're pretty comfortable talking about the sins of other people. It's pretty easy to become infuriated over the sins of others, even to the point of displaying righteous anger, perhaps even to, to mourn, maybe even shed a tear over sin in that larger context. But it's not so easy, and it's not comfortable at all, to look at our own personal sin. To feel outrage over our own personal sin. To be distraught over our own personal sin. To perhaps even weep over our own personal sin. Paul speaks to us regarding this godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. We read, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What Paul is teaching here, church family, is that God uses often uses sorrow over sin in our lives to turn us away from that sin and back to a closer walk with Him, back to the fullness of our salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. And, beloved, we as Christians should never regret God sending that sorrow part of that experience i just related to you a few moments ago and and my testimony there but but the sorrow of the worldly man paul is saying on the other hand the person who's not a christian is not the sorrow of true repentance and it leads only to death he says paul reminds the church in corinth and he reminds us to recall how much good this grief has done for us he says in effect you no longer merely shrug your shoulders over sin but you're serious and you're Sincere, and you're desperate to deal with the sin that I wrote to you about. So we're talking this morning about sorrow over sin that leads to genuine repentance. And here's where we need to pay attention, church family. You see, one problem we face increasingly in our day is a conspicuous lack of seriousness with regard to sin. It's not just out there. Like the frog in the kettle who failed to notice the water slowly being brought to a boil, we've come to a point where I fear where sins like self righteousness and worry and pride and apathy and gluttony and gossip and hatred and a hypercritical spirit and viewing things that we know we should not be viewing and more are overlooked, even seen as normative well, you know that's just that's just the way he is that's just the way she is you know and in, in too many places even among Christians sin is not it's just not taken seriously anymore sure there are teachers out there, out there preachers out there who preach long and loud uh, about sin but they're usually directing their sermons about sin to some particularly obvious one some sin they've identified as especially uh, egregious And what happens then is the more lethal attitudes of the heart that I mentioned earlier are ignored. In many of those places, the supposedly more significant sins people have given hierarchy to are replaced with much more lethal sins birthed out of this blinding carnal pride with which we're stricken because, you know, we'd just never do anything like that. I'd never do that. Church family, are we among those who are not taking sin seriously? Just as we saw that being poor in spirit is not about finances or mental health, it's entirely spiritual. So here again is something that's entirely spiritual, which has nothing to do with our natural life in this world. In fact, all these Beatitudes we're going to be studying have reference to a spiritual condition and or a spiritual attitude that we're to have. And those who are commended here are those who are poor in spirit. Jesus says, as always, they are blessed people, the happy people. Clearly not an attitude we see out in the world. But I've got to ask, again, are we seeing evidence of this in the church? Are we seeing evidence of this attitude in the church? A motivating reason, one motivating reason for studying the Sermon on the Mount and, and this particular Beatitude... We're concerned. You're here this morning so you have a concern for the spiritual life for the spiritual health of the greater church and of Richland Baptist Church in particular. So church family again, are we taking sin seriously? Has our church become so infected and affected by the culture at large that we're not as sensitive to sin as we ought to be? Has Has the attitude of blanket tolerance that pervades our culture crept into the church Andrew Murray writes one great power of sin is that it blinds men so they do not recognize its true character another writer observed of sin man calls it an accident (laughs) God calls it an abomination man calls it a blunder God calls it blindness man calls it a chance God calls it a choice man calls it an error God calls it enmity man calls it fascination God calls it fatality man calls it an infirmity God calls it iniquity Man calls it a luxury. God calls it leprosy. Man calls it liberty. God calls it lawlessness. Man calls it a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. Man calls it a mistake. God calls it madness. Man calls it a weakness. God calls it willfulness. Beloved, taking sin seriously begins when we call it what it is. Taking sin seriously means that we truly mourn over our sinful condition. This is what Paul means by godly sorrow. It's the cry of one whose heart has been broken because he or she has sinned against God. Listen to David in Psalm 51, one of my favorite psalms. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David had sinned against God. We know the story there. He couldn't escape that sin. Nathan confronted that sin and David mourned over it. And I believe we see from the context and from later scripture that that was not just because he'd been caught, not just because he'd been confronted here, but because he knew he had committed this grievous sin against the Father. He knew his... Sin was an insult to a holy and righteous God. David they, they realized that, and he took it to heart, and it broke his heart. But, but I encourage you to commit this passage to memory. I, I, I pray it every day, as I pray the model prayer. Lord, forgive us our debts. I, I pray this prayer there, and I play. I personalize it. It's it, it, it's me, and I know it's me. I, I, I encourage you to take some time and, and memorize that passage. The seriousness with which we must take sin, I believe, is evidenced by the Greek word that Matthew uses here for sorrow. uh, There are nine different words. This is the strongest, and it's the word pentheo. But another interesting thing, if we get into the grammar, is that it's a present participle. And what that means is this continuous action. So what Jesus is saying here, as blessed are those who mourn and go on mourning and go on mourning and go on mourning, okay? Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, uh, Put to death, therefore, and go on putting to death what is earthly in you. Uh, John Owen writes, So be killing sin all the time. Make it your priority every day. Always be killing sin as long as you are alive in this world. Don't even take one day off from it. Always remember, be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. Love it. are we doing this? Are you doing this? Are you killing your sin? Or is your sin killing you? Are we doing this every day? But we're to continually mourn our sin, mourn and go on mourning, that God may continually apply His forgiveness in our lives. And this will never happen. It'll never happen unless we take sin seriously. How seriously does God take sin? God takes sin so seriously that He sent His one and only Son to die on the cross of Calvary to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay. In God's sight, sin was so serious that nothing short of the death of His beloved Son could deal with it. It was because of your sin in mind that He was stretched out on that tree. It was because of your sin in mind that those nails were driven into His feet and hands. It was because of your sin in mind that He was left to hang there on that cross until He died. God the Father watched God the Son suffer this horrible agony because it was the only way to deal with our sin. Scott hit the nail on the head. I'm always, always, always driven to my knees and overwhelmed with sorrow for my sin when I contemplate the great price that was paid because of my sin. How seriously do you take your sins? Does, does it break your heart that you've sinned against God? Do you mourn, in the sense we're talking about this morning, over your sin? Do, do you experience a godly sorrow that leads you to repentance? I read that the Eskimos have an interesting, if rather cruel, way of hunting bear. They'll they'll take an animal bone and they sharpen it at both ends and then they have this boiling process where they contort and twist that bone. And, and then they freeze it in blubber animal fat and then they lay it across a path where bears frequent and as the bear comes along he smells that blubber and just gobbles it up in one gulp and as he does that though it's not blubber on the outside and inside that bone that twisted sharp bone begins to work and the moment he swallows it he's dead he just doesn't know it he doesn't drop dead immediately, but every move he makes, every step he takes causes that bone to twist and to slash and to tear, and the internal bleeding starts, and the Eskimos just follow the tracks of the bear until they find, find him dead laying in the snow. Loves the same way when a person swallows the way of the world and says, I don't need the Bible. I don't need church to tell me what's right or wrong. I'll figure that out for myself. I'm doing just fine. I'm not a murderer, I'm not a rapist, I'm I'm not a thief. I'm doing just fine deciding what sin is for myself. I'm going to do what I want to do. But the minute you do that, you're already in the process of destroying your life. The kind of mourning for which Jesus is calling here must be present. It's the foundation for God doing His conforming work in our lives, shaping us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Repentance paves the way for the comfort God desires to give us. And a lack of repentance shuts off the power of God. It's like that twisted bone swallowed by that bear. It tears away at our inside, slowly sapping our strength and ultimately ultimately killing us. We talk a lot about the hope for revival in in, in the church. Blood, there'll be no genuine revival without heartfelt repentance. And there can be no repentance without godly sorrow. Until we come to the place, church, where we truly mourn our sin, we will never experience full blessings of what God desires to give us I remember when we lived in Oregon, I pastored Highlands Baptist Church in Reedsport, Oregon our house, the parsonage had a large back window facing the backyard and we had all sorts of wildlife that would visit us there was the ever present squirrel of course and, and raccoons and every once in a while a porcupine would wander in. we even had a mama black bear come into our backyard one time And then there was a time when we had a visit from this very determined sparrow. And and this little bird was sitting on a nearby tree limb. I watched him, and he he would fly over and over again into that large picture window. And and I'm sure he was convinced that that reflection was just more yard for him to fly around in. And I thought he'd figure it out after a while. But I watched him do it four or five times, and he never did. You, th- you think he'd just be bloodied and battered and eventually give up, but he did it over and over again until it finally, I guess he broke his neck or whatever because he was he was dead outside the window. He just couldn't seem to stop that self-destructive behavior. And then the lesson of the, of the sparrow is that if we keep on doing the same sinful things, making the same poor sinful choices over and over again, we'll keep on getting the same hurtful harmful results if we want things to be truly different if we want to rise to a new level of personal intimacy in our walk with the Lord if we truly desire a new season of spiritual and numerical growth in the life of Richland Baptist Church to experience revival like we've not seen in a long time maybe maybe ever seen we've got to make better choices. We've got to turn our lives away from the habitual sin that we just keep banging our heads against. Otherwise, we're still going to be talking about the potential for revival this time next year and five years from now and ten years from now. And in the meantime, we'll just keep on banging and and bruising and blooding our lives against the false image like the sparrow and that reflection in the window, the false image of what the world says brings happiness. Revival can start in our personal lives and in the life of this church if we'll see sin for what it is and then genuinely mourn that sin, experience a godly sorrow over our sin. Doing that will always drive us to our knees in repentance, and genuine repentance always leads to revival. The consequence of our godly mourning is that God moves on our behalf. If we experience a godly mourning over sin, we will be comforted, That's Jesus promise. That's the blessing guaranteed for those who mourn. Now, what does this comfort mean? It means the sins over which we're mourning, for one thing, are forgiven. David, who knew what it was like to sin against God, wrote in Psalm 32, uh, verse 1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In another place, Psalm 30, verse 11, David almost shouts here, you've, tur- you've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. But it is so vital for us as a church to recover a biblical doctrine of sin. If we truly mourn, we will rejoice. Jesus says we'll be made happy and we'll be comforted. It's when we reflect upon the gospel, the salvation that has rescued us from absolute hopelessness, when the Holy Spirit reveals to us the Father's perfect satisfaction for our sin, that Christ has died for our sins, that Christ is even now standing at the right hand of God as our advocate before our Father in heaven. It's then that we see this perfect provision God has made in, and immediately we're comforted. That, that's the astounding thing, About the Christian life, great sorrow over sin leads to great joy over salvation and forgiveness and the hope of heaven. But without sorrow, there is no joy. This is the purpose of true godly Christian mourning. It's been God's purpose all along. When Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah is coming, he says that one of Christ's purposes will be to comfort those who mourn. God is sending Jesus to give flowers in place of their sorrow, olive oil in place of tears, and joyous praise in place of broken hearts. What begins in mourning, you see, ends in shouts of joy. As we experience the forgiveness and the grace of God, it ought to make us want to dance for joy. So let me ask you a question as we close. Are we guilty of having settled for less than that kind of joy? I ask that because we we hear the message of Jesus week after week and, and, and it's true in most of the churches across our nation and, and yet there's often so little response and so little enthusiasm it seems evident in the lives of the saints and I'm not talking about a, a fake plastic smile that masks reality but a genuine joy that comes from somewhere deep within our soul. A, a joy rooted in the forgiveness that we have experienced a a holy joy that that spills over onto and in the lives of people that we encounter in, in our daily pursuits, an infectious joy that leads them to desire what it is that we seem to possess. You think about the spectators this afternoon at the Super Bowl. Can we imagine them after seeing this spectacular play, overtime, touchdown? Super Bowl's on the line. Can we imagine them just sitting there in their stadium seat after that touchdown play with no reaction at all? Just sitting there stone-faced and... Man, that was a really good play. Looks like we're going to win the Super Bowl. You you and I would say, what's wrong with that person? What's wrong with him? What kind of person just sits there and shows no emotion at all? Could it be church? Could it be that we've come to a place where we no longer take our sins seriously enough to truly mourn over it, and that's the reason we have so visible joy in our salvation. Now, granted, for some it may be that the Son has yet to set you free. Your burdens have not yet been lifted. You are yet enslaved and shackled by your sin. But for the rest of us, when we remember what it was like when we, when we walked from the, from the blackness of our sin into the glorious light of God's grace, when we remember being set free from our sins by Jesus, when we recall finding hope in the, in the face of hopelessness, when we recall discovering true purpose for which we're here on this earth, purpose that replaced the frustration and futility of our old way of life, surely then, beloved, we will ex- exalt... Him. We will rejoice with exceeding great joy. Surely then we will weep with joy. Surely then we will pour our tears out in godly sorrow over our sins. Surely then joy will flood our, our souls as we revel in, the, revel in the peace and the forgiveness and the hope we're experiencing because we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Heavenly Father, we recognize today that often too often we fail to mourn over our sin. We're aware of it, but we excuse ourselves We justify and we rationalize. rationalize. Father, we we want to come to the place where we truly mourn. I pray, Father, that your Spirit will work in the hearts and lives of each believer here this morning. And that no matter where we're at on our walk, maybe we're on a mountaintop. Maybe we're in the darkest valley most of us probably somewhere in between father wherever we're at in our spiritual walk we take a close look at our sin at the sin in our in the lives of our, of those close to us and the in the in the greater sin on the macro level out in the world father that we would that we would come to a place where we truly understand call it what it is and mourn over that sin i pray each one of us would dedicate and rededicate ourselves a more pure more biblical understanding of of what is sin and how it affects our lives and quickly father pray that quickly your holy spirit would convict us and we would confess it and that we would repent father and that we'd walk forth in a in a new degree and a new level of personal holiness father i pray for those that are here today and and for much of this is, is foreign to them father they they don't know uh, your son, Jesus Christ, but they feel this morning even perhaps they, something in their heart, something in their mind that is, that is saying there must be something to this. I want to know more about this. I pray, Lord, that in a few moments when they have the opportunity to respond, they would, they would come and speak with me or with Scott or with someone else in the congregation about, about what this gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. And perhaps even today would be the day of salvation for them. We believe, Father. We've seen that happen before. We pray for that to happen again. We desire revival in our own personal lives and in the life of Richmond Baptist Church, Father. And we know that it begins with a true understanding of sin and, and genuine godly sorrow over that sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.